Faith for Today with Colin Urquhart and Julia Fisher. Well, we have spent three weeks looking at the first epistle of John, Colin. We thought it would take us just a few days, but it's been so interesting looking at the relationship between faith, love and obedience. Well, you know, I was going to just pick out a few verses here and there when we started, but when I get into this epistle, uh, you know, I just get so absorbed with it. There's so much wonderful teaching here and so many challenges for us to face that, you know, you end up by looking at the whole thing, really. And we start on verse 14 of chapter 5 today. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. Now, this is great, you see, because if we're people of faith and people who know the love of God, we have confidence in approaching him. We don't come with diffidence. We come with confidence. Just like the writer to the Hebrews says, you know, let us draw near to the throne of God with sincere hearts in full assurance of faith with that confidence. So this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. I was uh, uh, teaching in our Bible school this morning um, about Jesus raising Lazarus and how Jesus stood before the tomb and he lifted up his eyes to heaven when he prayed. He didn't bow his head. He lifted up his eyes to heaven when he prayed and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me and I know that you always hear me. And I said, that's a very good way to finish your prayers whenever you pray every day. Father, thank you that you've heard me and I know that you always hear me. But you see, the import of that is that Jesus knew, therefore, that he would receive from the Father whatever he had asked. So the next thing he does is command, Lazarus, come out! And Lazarus is raised from the dead. He knew that he would receive from God whatever he had asked. And this is the confidence that we are to have that we are living in relationship with God, right? We're seeking to obey his will, therefore to love and to believe. We may not be perfect in the expression of that, but our hearts are set upon loving him and trusting him. God knows that because he knows the hearts of every one of us. And uh, therefore, we can have absolute confidence that because we're living in this relationship of loving obedience and faith, that God will hear us. And if we know that he hears us, then we know that we receive of him whatever we ask. We're not praying into a void, saying, is God hearing? Is anyone around? Is anyone there? Is anybody listening? But we're praying in relationship. And this is what John has been talking about all the way through this epistle. Your relationship with God is a relationship of faith and a relationship of love. And that relationship is expressed in obedience. And if you are living in that relationship, then you can have confidence before God. And you can know that he hears you and you know that he will answer you. 
Now he says, of course, if we ask anything according to his will, that is another way of saying that whatever we ask in the name of Jesus, you can't ask in the name of Jesus for something that is not God's will. You can use the name of Jesus for anything, and that may not be his will, but that's not the same as praying in the name. To pray in the name of Jesus is to pray in the person of Jesus, and that is to pray what Jesus would pray, to believe what Jesus would believe, to expect what Jesus would have expected. You're praying on behalf of Jesus, in the person of Jesus. And so if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. And then... Um, sort of John winds up really with probably one or two issues that he knew people would be concerned about. And he said, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. Pray for him to be forgiven. Pray for him to be restored. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. Now that means a sin that cannot be forgiven. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. What does he mean by all that? Now, well, this is the big question. To what sin is he referring when he says a sin that leads to death? There are two possibilities. Um, one is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because Jesus says that cannot be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Son will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Or you could say it's to deny Jesus, especially in the face of persecution, because if you deny me before men, then I will deny you before my Father in heaven. Um, it would be a stretch, I think, to go beyond that. You could say that um, if you refuse to be merciful to others, then God will not be merciful to you. There's plenty in the teaching of Jesus about that. But... Um, is that sin of such a nature that will lead to death and be unforgivable? I think in, in Christians, even though they may go through a time when they're not merciful to others, God will get to work on them and, and they will realize that he's been so merciful to them that they will repent and will be merciful to others. So I don't think anybody can be absolutely sure, but uh, possibly... It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I think more likely in the context of what was happening because they were living through times of persecution on and off throughout the first century of the church's history, it's probably the denying of Jesus in the face of persecution. And dying and not repenting. Dying and not repenting, yes. Because Peter denied Jesus but repented. But he, 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 he repented, yes, yes. So, <clears throat> I mean, let's not worry about it let's just obey and believe and then we're secure and safe aren't we hallelujah so he then says we know that anyone born of god does not continue to sin well he's just reiterating what he said earlier the one who was born of god 
keeps him safe. And the evil one cannot harm him. You don't need to live in fear of the devil if you're living in faith and obedience to God. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That is so apparent. We see that so obviously today. He is the prince of this world. Satan is the prince of this world. But we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Because the devil is a liar, the devil is a deceiver, the, the devil is ultimately uh, so full of falsehood that he will be overcome by the truth. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then there's this very strange ending Dear children, keep yourself from idols. <laughs> well, <laughs> where did that come from? It, it came from, of course, another temptation that was all around them because a lot of people to whom John was writing would have been in idolatry before they became believers in Jesus. So he is probably meaning on the one hand, keep yourself from the influence of things that you were under before you became Christians. Don't go back to the worshiping of idols. But of course he could also mean, don't allow anything else in your life to become an idol. Don't allow a person to become an idol. Even your husband, your wife, your children, don't make them idols. Don't allow a hobby, don't allow um, a pastime, don't allow your work life to become an idol. First and foremost, you are there to worship God and therefore to love him, believe him, and obey him. So an idol is anything that comes between you and God? Anything that is more important to you than God is an idol. You worship the one who is most important in your life. And you only truly worship Jesus if he is the most important one in your life. Some people go to church and treat Jesus like a kind of um, religious hobby. Well, they don't truly worship him, do they? Because those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. And Paul says that we must pour out our, our lives, give our bodies as living sacrifices. This is the true worship. This is the spiritual worship. It's what you do, you see. We're, we're back with this. It's not what we say. We, yes, we worship God when we come together for our worship services, but then we worship him by the way we trust him, and we worship him by the way we express his love to others. You've been listening to Faith for Today, presented by Julia Fisher. This program is sponsored by Kingdom Faith. For further information, visit our website, kingdomfaith.com. 